Welcome to Ohio Matters, the Cleveland.com politics podcast. I'm Seth Richardson. I'm Andrew Tobias. I'm Mary Kilpatrick. And we're recording from the Cleveland Public Library. Special thanks to them, as always, for making this podcast possible. Uh, A couple of things before we get into it. If uh, any of you have feedback or want to suggest a guest, please email me. I'm at srichardson at cleveland.com. Again, that's srichardson at cleveland.com. This week on the podcast, we have Lieutenant Governor Mary Taylor. She is quite a compelling figure. I've had coffee with her several times. We thought it would be interesting to have her on since those discussions always seem to be fascinating to me. What do you guys think? I think that in an alternate reality, John Kasich would be president. She would have appointed her as his successor as governor, and then she would have been the front runner and cruised into a relatively easy uh, election this year. However, as we all know, that did not happen. And so she's been in this uh, situation of trying to kind of almost uh, run away from Kasich, who's become more of a, I guess, a pariah among the base in the Republican Party for some of his comments uh, criticizing President Donald Trump. And so she's uh, kind of running from behind. And, you know, she's been having a really hard time gaining traction. And uh, there's just a fundamental discomfort, I think, that she has with kind of trying to, to toe that line. I wouldn't count Mary Taylor down and out, though. She is a compelling person. That is just what Seth said. Yeah, so something about her is that she's a very personable lady. Uh, she has a really interesting story. I don't think she's a natural politician in a lot of ways. Um, so I think some of the um, things that you have to do in order to be elected to a big office, even though she's had success, obviously, to get her to where she is, I think it's still something that she has to work at. And I think that comes through in her interview. Mary Taylor sort of has the attitude that it's Mary Taylor against the world, and that's sort of the way she's uh, operating on this campaign. She is a fun person to talk to. She has a lot of personality. She hasn't been in politics that long, you know, when you consider her opponent, Mike DeWine, who's been uh, been in Ohio politics a figure for decades. And she'll she, tell you that, too. That's, yeah, uh, she'll, she'll definitely tell you that, too. I think, like, I think the thing about Mary is she is working really, really hard, um, and she is the underdog, and uh, that's, a, that's a hard position to be in. Actually, one thing uh, that her advisors told us before she came on was that she's not extremely comfortable talking about her personal life. And if you look at her campaign website, I mean, it talks about some of her plans from a policy standpoint. Uh, it describes her running mate in pretty great detail and what his background is, but uh, her life story's not in there. And she, she has an interesting one, and we were able to get her to talk about it a little bit more than she usually does. All right. With that, let's uh, take a listen to the interview that Andrew and Mary did with Lieutenant Governor Mary Taylor. How are you, Mary? I'm great. How are you? Good. Thanks. Um, so thanks for uh, joining us today, Lieutenant Governor. Uh, so uh, just to kind of start off, can you tell us, uh, you're a Northeast Ohio native, right? I am. So where did you grow up? I grew up uh, in Akron. I was born and raised in Akron. And essentially, I've lived in the region the my entire life. I, I live in Green today in Summit County and probably moved 10 minutes away from my house. So you are a CPA, um, so when you were like a little girl, did you want to grow up and be an accountant or how did you end up doing that? So I didn't, not when I was a little girl did I specifically say, gee, I want to be an accountant or I want to be a CPA. Um, but I, I think I tended towards characteristics that might be um, likened to somebody who is a CPA. When I was little, I used to listen to the Cleveland Indians game games on the radio. Now, yes, we had TV. I'm older than you both. But, um, but I liked listening to the games on the radio. It just was a different game rather than watching it on on TV and I used to keep track of the stats and I collected baseball cards and I if you don't know this little trick 
Velveeta boxes are the best place to store um, baseball cards. They fit. Per- they fit perfect. They're, they fit in there perfectly. So I don't know. My dad may have said that I liken to somebody who might grow up and be an accountant um, or a CPA. But the truth is, I started co- well, I started college. Uh, my original major when I started college at the University of Akron was chemistry because I wanted to go to med school. And uh, I spent the first semester taking chemistry and calculus, and it was my first C in chemistry. And I decided, you know, I'm probably not going to be a doctor. (laughs) Um, Do you still have your baseball cards? Did you pass them on to your sons? You know what? We have been asking that question for years, uh, and my father has passed away. But I still own the house that I grew up in. And the last place we haven't looked is up in the garage in the attic. And I, I'm hoping that they might still be up there. But my dad pretty much cleaned house and got rid of a lot of things. And so I'm a, bit, I'm a little bit fearful they got thrown away. You know, I want to ask you a little bit about your upbringing. Um, I know you've said publicly um, your mother left when you were a child and you were raised by your dad and your grandmother. Uh, can you talk a little bit about growing up, what that was like for you? So it certainly was different for the times. Um, I'm 51, going to be 52 soon. You can send me a birthday card if you want. I'll tell you what the date is. (laughs) I'm kidding. Um, And so it was very different. It really was at that point in time when more of my friends' parents were getting divorced than ever before, and it wasn't what we were used to. We weren't used to parents getting divorced. Um, And so that was a a real challenge to to be a part of a a group of kids now who had divorced parents. Um, And even more unique than that was that we stayed with my dad and my dad was you know my dad was which is why he's my role model today because he was for for a period of time um when I was a teenager the person in my life and my grandmother too my grandmother which was his mom um was always somebody that I viewed as a role model as well she worked um as I mean as, as long as I could remember hearing stories about my dad and his brother growing up my grandmother always worked and she worked at Goodyear so I always likened her to one of the Rosie the Riveters and she was in a lot of ways so it, working for me was what I saw in both my daddy and my grandma and your dad's a bricklayer right my dad was a bricklayer so he was a bricklayer when I was a small child um but he, when he was a baby he suffered from polio and because he had polio it was when if you go back and you, you Google it and you'll see some of the um, articles in, in the papers about kids at the at Akron Children's Hospital and my dad was one of them and lots of kids unfortunately died and he was very fortunate and he lived but because of that one of his legs was smaller than the other so he had a physical I guess deformity for lack of a better word is probably what we would have called it then um, but he and it was so it was physically harder for him to lay brick because his leg was smaller it was shorter he wasn't properly balanced a long way of getting to he was a bricklayer for a good part of his life but that also was an insurance salesman um so you worked your way through college right I did. So what are, what are some of like your favorite jobs? I don't know if you, how many there were, but. I, I believe I had, I think I had three jobs starting in high school. So I worked in retail and I worked at a women's store. It was kind of, it was probably what you might call a specialty boutique at Rolling Acres Mall, which, you know, blast from the past. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And so it doesn't exist anymore. I worked there and then I went to work for Montgomery Wards, which is another blast from the past. Names that probably don't mean a lot to younger people today, but it was uh, another um, retail establishment. And then ultimately ended up uh, finishing college. I worked at Bank One and I started in their collections department, but then was, I posted 
posted for a position in the accounting department. So I was working in the accounting department at Bank One here in Akron um, when I was finishing college. So that was kind of like your foot in the door into the financial industry then, or at least your first real experience. It really was because I worked in the accounting department and I worked with accountants. Um, I got to see what it meant to be an accountant, at least from the corporate perspective. And so being the accountant that I am, I really enjoyed that job. Maybe there were college students that wouldn't have thought that it was fun to work in a bank accounting department, but I, I actually really liked it. And I really liked the guy that I worked, um, I, well, all of them, they were just all great people and were always very supportive and encouraged me because they knew I was majoring in accountant and uh, majoring in accounting. And, and many of them all did encourage me to go into public accounting versus staying on the corporate side, which is ultimately what I did. You know, my mother is an accountant and uh, she got her CPA, I think, in 1983. And she talks about how things have changed in accounting, the the computers, I mean, the old school accounting techniques. I think she um, talked about having a ruler and, and doing scales. Uh, I, I don't know. Have things changed a lot uh, in accounting? Funny you should ask me this because my younger son is majoring in accounting. Um, he's at Kent State University and I spent almost four hours yesterday doing homework with him, accounting homework, and it's totally different. So it's the what's called corporate or financial accounting intermediate was what I used to call it. And it's very different. What you what you debit and credit, which now we're talking accounting lingo, we, we don't have to go there, right. is still the same, but you everything's on the computer. So that part of it is very different. And so I could help him with the, well, you debit this and credit this if this is the transaction, but he had to work himself through the computer in the way that they do that. Uh, so that part is absolutely very different. So when did politics kind of first show up on your radar as far as your personal interests or, you know, your aspirations go? So it was a local development issue where I live in Green. Um, In Summit County, there was a church that was proposed to be built across the street from my neighborhood. And it became very controversial in the community, but especially in my neighborhood. And um, there were, I would say, half the neighbors didn't want the church built. And the other half of us wanted the church built because we knew the alternative was going to be another 350 homes. And I also thought a church would be a really, really good neighbor. And so it was a time of growth for our city. And those issues often popped up. And I just didn't understand why so many of my neighbors were opposed to the church. And it's really how I got involved in politics. I, not previous to that, been interested, nor did I, would I have ever expected to, to be involved in elective office for certain. And ultimately, the right thing was done. The church got built. It's still there today. Um, and that's how I got involved. I got involved on city council because of that church. Something that you said is, and I forget exactly what the way is that you phrased it, but that you were, when you're in the private sector, you helped women like uh, achieve work-life balance or something along those lines. Uh, so what was, what, what did you mean by that? So when I first started um, right out of college, I was very fortunate to go to what was then one of the big six public accounting firms. And I started my career at Deloitte. Um, I think we're down to four now, but then it was six. And um, as soon after I started, I got pregnant with my first son. And after he was born, I decided that I wanted to continue my professional career, but I wanted to, to spend time with him as well. And so I went to my partners and I asked them if they would agree to a part-time schedule for me. Um, and it was the first time in, in our office that had been done. And to their credit, they did. They agreed to let me work part-time and um, be able to spend time with my son, but also continue my professional career. The world of work looks a lot different now than it did then. You could probably ask your mom about, you know, what was oh, 19, yeah. what did you say, 83 or Yeah, 84? 83, things were really different. She had a, a big floppy bow tie. Um, one of oh, her first. I wore those too. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's not pretty. <laughs> not pretty. Well, you, your mom and I could lots share. Of, lots of shoulder pads. <laughs> I, absolutely. The shoulder pads, the floppy little bow tie or the, the little rosette. Yes, yes. Your mom and I could probably share lots of stories. Yeah, she was at Ernst & Young. Okay. Um, you know, I'm curious too, um, you know, you've talked about how important family is to you. And obviously you made um, your family a priority throughout your career. Um, you know, I'm curious, how did you meet your husband? So we met, um, he was best friends with my neighbor and my neighbor um, was one of my best friends. He and I, he had known me since the day I was born and my brother and my neighbor and my husband were all the same age. So um, indirectly, he started just hanging out more with my neighbor and my brother. Um, I don't think anybody knew it was the younger sister story, but um, we also were going to the same church. And so... He, we ended up, you know, in the same church together and we just started to, to build a friendship and a relationship and, um, that's 30, over 30 years, well, over 30 years ago now we've been married, but it was longer ago than that. You know, we want to ask you a little bit about, you know, your background in politics. Um, I'm curious when you were a state representative, uh, you started your uh, career on the financial committee. Um, what did you learn about politics from being in the state house? Interesting about politics. So on the on the finance committee, you're doing the state's budget, and it really is the most important bill that you do. And I know a lot of people probably don't get as interested in that as I do because I'm an accountant. Um, but you you learn a lot about the state finances, but you also learn a lot about politics. And what I learned about politics was um, the squeaky will gets the grease and the entrenched establishment's pretty strong and powerful and it often gets what it wants. And so I, I think that's what I would say about what I learned about politics. And we should say you were kicked off the finance committee because you opposed the, the budget, right? I, yes, that's correct. I opposed the budget because it included a tax increase and I did not support that and I voted no and I got kicked off the committee. Was that, uh, how did that, you know, how did you take that at the time? Um, now I look back at it as a badge of honor. It, it you know, at first being newer involved in, in political office, um, I wasn't quite sure what to think about it. But when I looked around at some of my colleagues who suffered similar fates, um, it really became very clear to me. We stood, we stood with the people and we stood in the right place. And, and the consequence for it was, you know, as my dad always used to say, do the right thing. And there may be a consequence, but the consequence is worth it. And that was just one of those times for me. You started, and so you'll have to actually correct me on the timeline just because I'm kind of winging it here a little bit. But so you were on, you were in the state house for a couple of years around the time that, um, so when is it that you started first thinking about running for state auditor and, um, what was it about seeking a higher position like that, that that caught your interest? So I was in the legislature. My first term was three and four, 2003 and four. And then my second term getting reelected in 04 was five and six. Yeah, five and six. So it was actually in 2004, I decided that I wanted to run for state auditor. And it had a lot to do with the fact that it, it's an auditor's office. And it's what CPAs do that that office audits every single state and local government in the state of Ohio. And I actually thought that was pretty interesting, and I actually started, as I learned more about the office, I, I saw that there were a lot of good things we can do, we could do from that office to make sure government was accountable. So you said that you didn't necessarily really think about running for office until you had that local development issue. Um, you got elected to the, be a state representative not long after that. Um, 
and then you know not too long after that you started considering thinking about running for auditor so um when did you kind of realize that you or what was it that caused you to kind of kind of i don't want to say get sucked into politics but clearly you know here you are 10 years later um when, so when did you first know that that was something that you were really interested in doing so when I was in the legislature, I continued to work um, at a, the local accounting firm that I was working for at the time. So I, I did continue my accounting career, even though I was serving in the legislature. And um, it, it wasn't until I decided to, to run for state auditor that I knew if I did that, obviously, I would then be walking away from my accounting career and would be doing that job full time as auditor of state. Um, I, to me, I, I think it, it just seemed the more I talked to people and the more I traveled the state, especially when I was uh, um, campaigning for a state auditor, it just it just cemented the reason that I was there in the first place, which was take on tough challenges, take on big problems, and get something done that actually matters. And so I've always felt that that's, that's what drives me, and that's what that's what drives me today. It's not different. The issues maybe are slightly different. Um, maybe the stage looks a little different, but it's about, it's, it, it, it is about serving people. You expect us to say that, I'm sure. Um, but it is about serving people. So you were the only Republican who won a statewide office in 2006. It was a bad year for your party in general. Um, what, what do you think uh, contributed to you having success when obviously it wasn't really a good year overall for, for the party? So we did what you're supposed to do, which is go out and visit 88 counties and talk to as many people in, in, um, in your party. That's where you start, right? Because you don't know if there's going to be a primary or not. And so you go out and you talk to people in your political party and you gain as much of their support as you can. Um, but you never forget that you need to listen to make sure that you're listening to, to people, right? It's not all about what the establishment wants or, or the political party that might be by, might be viewed as the establishment, but you're also listening to what real voters want. And that's ultimately, that's what we did. We also knew that I had a winning message. Um, the poll showed us very early on I could win, even if it was a really bad year. Nobody knew how bad the year was going to be until it was over. Um, our Republican um, gubernatorial can, candidate, I think, lost by something over 25% and it was unheard of that anybody down ballot could win. Um, but I'm a CPA and I would be the first CPA elected to serve as state auditor. And we knew that that was an important message. And that's what we talked about everywhere we went. And I tried to, I tried to get people more interested in what the auditor of state's office was or who the person was in a way that they probably wouldn't have before. And I think it, I think it worked. So you mean you don't you say the word auditor and people perk up and get excited? Is that what you're saying? Not unless you're me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, around that time, our editorial board described you as a quote thorn in the side of Jimmy Demora. Um, how did that issue come on your radar, and were you surprised to see that? Wow, let me think back. How did we find out about what was going on? in Cleveland. And while you think real quick, yeah. just for our listeners, Jimmy DeMora was the leader of the Cuyahoga County Democratic Party. He was uh, a county commissioner too. And your office, um, I, I guess he w he engaged in a lot of stuff that eventually resulted in him ending up in prison. It's sort of like the upshot. But anyways, I'm sorry. So I think I'd have to go back and check the record exactly. So um, if I, I, this is what I recall. We were involved at the Auditor of State's office doing a performance audit of the county auditor's office. And, <clears throat> excuse me, I think that's when it started to become more clear that there was there was stuff going on in Cauga County that needed to be looked at in a more serious way. And we worked with um, 
the U.S. attorney here, um, who happens to be running for a different office today. So we won't mention his name. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we won't, no names. Uh, but we had a great working relationship together, ultimately, you know, working with them, working uh, with other federal authorities, being able to ultimately hold people accountable was, was our goal, and that's what we did. And so I think it really did just start with the Auditor of State's office, and then we started to get involved um, because of what we were discovering when we did the County Auditor's office and the performance audit. You're notably, as we mentioned, the only Republican to hold a state office. So what, what were the dynamics like politically as you were doing your job and a lot of the other state offices obviously were, were, were Democrat controlled? Not as awful as everybody thinks. I do think that there is a perception that because you're of different political, you know, you're, you belong to a different political party, you're not supposed to like each other. That's not really how it goes. Um, I'm not saying that, you know, they maybe they didn't like me, but we talked and we worked together when people would expect us to because that's what we needed to do. Um, but it, it was my office who first put out the projections, the Auditor of State's office, about the um, impending $8 billion budget deficit. And we were pretty vocal about it and the first time it was publicly said that the state was going to face an eight billion dollar budget deficit so not you you know you've got to work with people and and do what the public expects you to do from a service perspective but you also have to be um you have to be honest too and so i'm sure it got a little bit harder to talk to my democrat colleagues after we identified that eight billion dollar budget deficit At Capital Letter, it's the must-have daily read for State House happenings. Five mornings a week, Cleveland.com provides a daily intelligence briefing filled with succinct, timely information. It's perfect for people, businesses, and organizations that care about decisions made by lawmakers, the governor, and all of state government. From breaking news to rumblings in the rotunda, if you're not getting Capital Letter, you're missing out. For more information, visit Cleveland.com slash Capital Letter. That's cleveland.com slash C-A-P-I-T-O-L-L-E-T-T-E-R. Did you know that one in six Northeast Ohioans struggle with hunger? Unexpected expenses, prescription costs, and rising heat costs are all things that can prevent people from being able to put food on the table, and they are forced to make difficult decisions that often result in hunger. But you can help with the Greater Cleveland Food Bank. Each dollar that you donate to the Harvest for Hunger campaign will result in four meals. Donate today by visiting harvestforhunger.org. Help feed your neighbors. Cleveland.com is a sponsor of the Greater Cleveland Food Bank's Harvest for Hunger campaign. So let's talk about John Kasich. Let's not talk about John Kasich, says Mary Taylor. Uh Uh-oh. So this has kind of played out somewhat, and we mentioned this earlier, uh, Mary Taylor does not want to be seen as being John Kasich's third term, and I think that's kind of caused her to, uh, just that that tension is coming through in her messaging, and so, um, but we did ask her how she met John Kasich. Uh, She was the state auditor. She was the only Republican elected official on the state level when she was asked to join his ticket in 2010, and clearly there was some understanding that she would eventually be in line to run for governor herself, that Kasich's team would help her out, but... Uh, things didn't work out that way. And at this point, you know, uh, she basically made very clear that John Kasich is not, does not have a role in her campaign, that she's not running to be John Kasich. She wants to be Mary Taylor instead. 
Yeah, and I think it's an interesting position to take, right? Because John Kasich is a very popular governor going out on his uh, last year in office. Uh, He's a national figure. It's interesting that she is um, sort of shunning away or shying away from John Kasich and the John Kasich brand. But if you learn a little bit more about Mary Taylor and the sort of hardline conservative stances that she's trying to take, it's not necessarily in line with John Kasich. Um, so, for example, uh, Kevin DeWine, the former Ohio Republican Party chairman, pretty recently said, and he expressed a thought that others have as well, I don't get it. Why doesn't she just lean into the John Kasich thing? Because it's there anyways, so why not make the most of it? And and she's not done that, and so it causes her to have to say things like, oh, um, yeah, John Kasich endorsed my, my candidacy, but he's not in my corner or anything like that. And then people kind of shrug their shoulders, and then she has to explain that. And it's just, I don't know. It's especially strange given that I don't know that I've ever seen a gubernatorial candidate who is running to succeed someone of the same party basically saying, no, we want, we want nothing to do with them. The, actually, the only time I can think of when that's really happened was Chris Christie out in New Jersey and Rod Blagojevich in Illinois. And in both of those cases, there were very extenuating circumstances. They were, you know, approval polls down in the, I think Rod Blagojevich left with like a seven or something like that. So, and with that, let's get back to more of the interview with Lieutenant Governor Mary Taylor. You know, I'm curious, I want to move toward your relationship with uh, the current governor, John Kasich. Uh, We're curious, when did you first meet John Kasich? So I met, uh, let's see, I met John Kasich, it was, it was 2005 or 2006, and he was at an event and um, was doing a book signing, and I, I decided that I wanted to meet him, so I showed up, and it was, a, it was a fundraiser for a pack or something like that, and he was also doing a book signing or passing out some of his books, so I, I decided to show up and introduce myself. What was it like campaigning for him in 2016 when he was running for president? I mean, it must have been a really interesting experience. I had the opportunity to to travel a little bit uh, on, you know, the presidential campaign and do a little bit of work um, in a couple other states. And it, it is it's fun. It is fun. I would encourage anybody who ever has any interest or opportunity to get involved in a, a presidential campaign there. I mean, it's it's very it's fun. There's nothing like it. And you also learn about other state politics that are states politics that's different than our own. Um, in New Hampshire, everybody wants to talk politics. Everybody expects you to talk politics. And nobody's offended when that's what you're there for. Um, and so it's really very interesting. It's a little bit different than the way we do things in Ohio. And so it was neat to be involved in that way. But I did, I also, um, 2012 and 2008, going back my years here, um, also did some work with regard to presidential campaigns, and, and that was good as well. In 12, I, tra- I traveled a couple times out of state. I was in Pittsburgh, in Pennsylvania. I was in um, Wisconsin doing some political events. And so it's, it's, it's a diff- it's, it is very different, and there's nothing else like it. So obviously you met uh, Governor Kasich at that book signing, but you ended up being his running mate uh, for, for his Ohio governor uh, candidacy. How did that relationship develop? How did you end up being his running mate? We just stayed in contact over the years from the time that I met him um, up until the time I did get elected auditor of state and um, was serving in office. And when we, my office, 
put out the projections for the $8 billion budget deficit. It certainly piqued the interest of the individual who had been planning to run for governor. John Kasich had been planning to run for governor and piqued his interest. And um, I think that's where it it all started to evolve as far as what what would be my future plans. And I was very, I was worried. I was concerned about the the future financial position of the state of Ohio. And, and so I think that's obviously that was something he was concerned about as well. And, and it was very interesting as it became a major part of that original campaign. When did you first um, think about running for governor? And one of my favorite stories about, you know, I guess, uh, I tend to kind of get hung up on silly little things um, and kind of, but anyways, um, so Uh, It was actually, it was in, I think, August 2016, and uh, Michael, uh, your communications person, apparently, I think, actually tweeted it. I don't know if he's a cameraman or not, but you uh, you were at a uh, state event, and there was was a jobs fair, and uh, it was like a chalkboard, and it said, when when I grow up, I want to be blah, and you wrote governor, or somebody wrote it. Um, So I, I don't know if that was the exact moment that you decided, but so when did that first become something that you were interested in, though? It, it was something that I was had been thinking about. Um, and clearly, um, it wasn't, I don't, I, I remember that day, I remember doing that on the yeah, chalkboard. And we all in the media were like, oh boy, here it is. Here you know? it is. That's right. the announcement. But it wasn't the announcement. Um, and so I had been thinking about it for some time. And for me, I, I don't remember the exact date that I said, yep, this is what I'm going to do. Um, but as I looked at it, it became more and more clear to me that when I looked at the challenges that we still faced as a state, that was the best place to be to solve or to present real solutions to those problems. And I, I don't know the exact date when I said, yep, this is absolutely what I'm doing. But I had been thinking about it for some time. And why did you decide to run for governor then? Because I believe that there are some nagging problems that we face. And um, I, I, I want a governor who's going to prevent, present real substantive solutions, conservative solutions to address the problems that we face. And I believe that's me. So something that kind of you've heard about this a lot, but uh, so Governor Kasich endorsed you for, um, or at least supports your candidacy, and that was, um, yeah, so he supports your candidacy. Um, you've been kind of reluctant to kind of fully embrace it, or at least some people have perceived it to be that way. Uh, can you kind of explain to us the dynamics of, you know, uh, of transitioning from being his lieutenant governor and now obviously running for his job, but trying to differentiate yourself at the same time? So I think a lot of people are reading into this a a lot that's not there. Um, It is, I have spent, you know, from the beginning of this governor's race for certain, I've been focused on identifying who Mary Taylor is and describing to the voter who Mary Taylor is. That's kind of an existential question. Yeah. Well, Mary Taylor is not, Mary Taylor is is, is more than the lieutenant governor of John Kasich, right? So, you know, to be fair, I don't think anybody should be elected just because they're something, right? They're, well, I was the lieutenant governor or I was, you know, name other offices if you want. I think you have to be able to define and describe yourself to the voters of the state of Ohio that go beyond what, you know, the public's, you know, go beyond the office that you just most recently held. So that was, go- that that's just natural and that's normal that I would be out there talking about who Mary Taylor is and also normal that that's also going to, that's going to include where I may have policy differences from John Kasich. And I, I know a lot of people want to read something into that that's not necessarily there, but the governor and I have very different policy perspectives with regard to certain items. And I need to be very clear where I stand, um, especially on, on issues that we differ. And I, I think it's very normal. I talked to, you know, another governor from New Jersey, say, 
and had a conversation about, you know, his lieutenant governor at the time running for governor. And it's just normal. You have to go out and define yourself. So I know everybody wants to say, are you running away from that? Or what does it mean? Um, You know, John Kasich is, is not involved in my campaign. And he hasn't been. And that's, that's just it. That's where we are. So what are some things that you would point to that you would have um, done things differently uh, or maybe you would approach the job differently kind of future that, that kind of help illustrate the differences between you and Governor Kasich? So I, what I always try to be really careful. I'm not going to sit here and second guess decisions made because he was the governor and it was his responsibility and his sole authority to make decisions. But I can tell you what I will do differently um, going forward. Um, I will end the Medicaid expansion because it's not financially sustainable. You know, I've been pretty vocally critical of Obamacare since 2011. And I saw it firsthand from um, as, as serving as the director of the Ohio Department of Insurance. Um, but I also don't believe that that medicates the best we can do and people who are able to work I, I want to help encourage get back to work our social welfare programs are pretty much set up today to keep people dependent on government rather than giving people um, the tools they need to become independent those are the kinds of conversations that I want to have yes it's about ending uh, the Medicaid expansion but it's also about what do we do to help individuals live their God-given potential. Um, Common Core is another area. I've talked to parents. I've talked to um, schools that Common Core is getting in the way of the innovation they need in the classroom. And what I'd really like to see is that innovation restored to the classroom so kids are getting the type of education they need um, so that when they graduate from high school, they either have the skills they need to get a job or can get into college remediation free. Um, we've lost our mind with testing and we have all these tests and I think it's safe to say I've talked to parents they know less today about how their students are progressing or their kids are progressing than we have in the past and I think those are the things that we need to continue to look at and change um, and, and continue to make progress so that we're a state that's growing that we have more jobs and we have more people here able to take those jobs. How are you feeling about the campaign right now? I mean, you're heading into the May primary. Your opponent has more money, um, earned the endorsement of the party. Um, how do you feel uh, feel right now? We feel pretty good, actually. I think you were there on Friday. At least I heard that. I didn't see you, but I, Michael pointed out you were there. You were just the fly <laughs> on the wall. Isn't it great to be a fly on a wall once in a while? You were probably more than just a fly on a wall. Um, look, <laughs> I, I think if we learned nothing coming out of 2016, and you've probably both heard me say this, but it's but it's the truth. If we learned nothing, this same old, same old, go along to get along, establishment's going to rule the day, um, that didn't happen in 2016. And we saw it on both sides. You know, look at both sides. If if money and, and, and your the highest name ID mattered, Jeb Bush would have been the Republican nominee and Hillary Clinton would probably be our president today. Neither one of those happened. And it's because people are sick and tired of the establishment dictating to them who their elected officials are going to be. And we are sensing that that's exactly what's going on today. Um, And I think that coming out of the endorsement on Friday, which is insider politics, but we're all insiders or the three of us from a perspective, we know a lot about what's going on in, um, in Columbus with regard to insider politics. The average person 
isn't paying attention to that. The average person wants a choice. The average person wants to understand who are the candidates and what do you stand for? When are you going to have a debate so that we can have an honest conversation about what are the issues and how are you going to solve the problems that that we still face, you know, their individual family might be uh, facing today. And so I believe coming out of Friday, we are in a stronger position to move forward and be successful. And uh, we're going to communicate effectively to voters using all of the tools available to us. And ultimately, at the end of the day, I think there's a very clear choice in the Republican primary. You can, you know, you can choose the establishment status quo, good old boy ticket, Mike DeWine and John Husted, or you can vote for the um, non-establishment conservative ticket, Mary Taylor and Nathan Estruth. We actually, when we were doing research for this interview, we read that uh, party leaders or somebody, there's always like, People are encouraging me to run. I don't, we never really know who the people are. But uh, in, in 2012, we read that you were encouraged to potentially uh, consider seeking uh, running for U.S. Senate. Um, it seems like during this election cycle, you would always hear, oh, Mary Taylor's running for Congress or Mary Taylor's going to do this or that. I think there was a logjam in the uh, the candidates running for governor. Did you ever think about running for any other offices? Did, have people considered or reached out to you about this during this uh, election cycle? Um, so... I never considered running for Congress. I know lots of people said, oh, she's just going to run for Jim Renacci's seat. Well, no, I had no interest in doing that. Um, I got into the governor's race because of the challenges that we face and the best place to be to solve that the problem, solve those problems is in the governor's office. So I never seriously considered that. And um, people will put quotes around people were saying, I don't know who those people, I know who some of those people are. Um, I never considered running for another statewide office. I spent probably 30 seconds or maybe 60 seconds thinking about the U.S. Senate um, seat when Josh Mandel dropped out. But that really, it's not about holding office. It's about getting things done. And that's just who I am. And so there may have been easier, easier paths to choose. Um, but I think being in the governor's office is where I need to be to, to help address the real issues that we face in the state of Ohio. You know, you use the word good old boy a couple of times to describe, um, you know, your your opponent. I'm curious whether or not you think the Republican Party has a good old boy problem. Um I'm curious, too, for your perspective about what it's like to be a woman in the Republican Party. Um, there are not that many. So, I, good old boy. I use that because I think it's pretty descriptive and I think it's pretty accurate. Um, you look at Mike DeWine and John Husted have held elective office for over 60 years and have no private sector experience to speak of. And so it's not only is it, a, I think it's it's descriptive, I think it's also helps us, you know, distinguish that ticket from our ticket. I spent 16 years in the private sector um, and Nathan, my running mate, obviously just took an early retirement from Procter & Gamble and spent almost 27 years in the private sector creating jobs. There's a pretty stark contrast between what that ticket represents and what this what we represent. So I, I, I think it's appropriate to, ha- to use um, those terms. I would like to, and you've, you've probably heard me say this, I would like to see more women get involved in Republican politics. And um, I would like to see more women be, be the voice at the table and I think we bring a different voice. I'm a mom. I'm a wife. I, I have different experiences um, because I'm a mom and I'm a wife. And I'd love to see more women get involved in the Republican Party. And I, I will continue to encourage women to get involved and be a voice at the table.
And we've uh, explained this incident, I feel like, at least once on this podcast. But recently, um, a couple of Republican state legislators made some offensive comments about women at a semi-private event uh, for another uh, Republican official. Uh, and you tweeted, you actually, uh, this outrageous t- treatment of women must stop. And then you go on and said the good old boys. Actually, I'll just read the whole tweet. Why not? We have, we have time, right? The good old boys and state government still don't get it. And the fact that it's happening while we're having an important national discussion on this topic is indicative of the pervasiveness of the problem. So you were in the state house uh, in the 2000s. Um, did you, um, were you surprised to see that based on your experiences being there, that it uh, continues you know, to be an issue like this? Um, that's a great question. I, I was, I, I, I was exposed maybe once or twice to what I felt was inappropriate behavior or comments during my time in the legislature. Um, but I just, you know, I walk away from it. I don't, I don't stand to let, you know, I'm not going to let that happen. I just walk away. And I think it was comments more than anything. Am I surprised today? Um, the answer should be yes. I'm surprised. I think maybe the answer is not necessarily surprised because the, you know, the state Republican Party just endorsed the good old boys in, you know, in this two-way primary for governor. Um, I, I, I think that we really need to put an end to this. I think that statements are outrageous that we, I was referring to in that tweet and people, you know, men need to stop talking about women in derogatory ways and need to not put women in awkward positions related to a job that they, you know, related to their job because of inappropriate conversation or inappropriate behavior. And yeah, I think it is, I think it's time to put a stop to it. And I think we are having a serious conversation and the women who have come forward and have spoken about things that have happened to them in the past, it it just, it's just screams to me all the louder. It needs to stop. And so we're hearing about these things years after the fact for probably pretty obvious reasons. And we we want to get to the point where it's either it, it has to end or if women today find themselves in those unfortunate positions, they can immediately speak out about it and um, the, the issue can be immediately dealt with. So I, I know our Democratic listeners uh, who are right now are thinking themselves, what about President Trump? You know, obviously, uh, he wasn't the only uh, national leader in media or politics or business, you know, just across the spectrum. You've seen a lot of different uh, powerful men be accused of this kind of behavior. Um, so do you feel like your party has the authority to talk about these issues, given, um, you know, the president has has faced accusations like this? I, I'm not going to speak for the Republican Party, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speak for me, Mary Taylor, um, a woman who had a pretty successful professional private sector career and has done okay um, in the political arena. And it doesn't matter who it is or where it is. And we're seeing it. It's across. I mean, across the board. You go media, politics, um, Hollywood. It's everywhere. It's got to stop. It just has to stop. And we need to come to a meeting of the minds about putting an end to it. Dealing with dealing with what happened, you know, maybe some time ago, but putting an end to it so it doesn't happen in the future. Girls today should not be subject to um, these types of issues going forward and we're we're all we all have the power to stop that and so should the you know i'm not going to speak for the republican party but i'm going to speak for me
So we also talked to Mary Taylor a little bit about her campaign um, because she, she's made it very clear. It's her campaign and it's not John Kasich's campaign. Recently, it was disclosed that Mary Taylor loaned her campaign a significant amount of money, millions of dollars. That's not something you really want to do if you're a politician. You want people to give you money. It's sort of a last-ditch effort to save her campaign. What do you think? Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I mean, often candidates will lend themselves money at the beginning and then kind of to kick things off and and help build up momentum. Um, She's been out running for office for, I mean, officially around six months, unofficially, you know, since 2016, you know, right after the election. Having to do that at this stage, I guess she really has a conviction that she's going to win. I mean, there is a path. It's not impossible, but it really isn't an ideal situation to, to have found herself in. So we also talked to Mary Taylor a little bit about who she is, and she's thought really deeply about this, not only who she is as a person, but who she is as a candidate. She views her candidacy as sort of branding and has thought a lot about the message behind her campaign. Uh, And you don't really hear politicians sit down with reporters and talk about that sort of thing, like, you know, the sort of bullet points of, you know, why their candidacy is what it is and who they are, um, that sort of thing. It was it was sort of it was interesting. I mean, every every candidate maybe doesn't necessarily speak in the third person, but there is this kind of separation between their public and their private self um, with her. Um, she explicitly really talked about it, which is really interesting and revealing. Um, and I guess it's unusual in that uh, a lot of politicians are just so smooth that they sort of, um, it's like they're a method actor. They're just permanently playing the political version of themselves. And and so I think that uh, on a personal level, talking to Mary Taylor is really fun. Um, but it's that kind of like dichotomy, again, that as I mentioned earlier, maybe she struggles a little bit to be a natural politician With that, let's get back to more of the interview with Lieutenant Governor Mary Taylor. You recently loaned yourself $3 million, at least your campaign. Uh, Can you kind of talk us through your decision to do that and uh, why you felt like it was the right decision to make? So we, we, the timing was the right timing. So Nathan um, had just agreed, and I think the announcement had just been made, um, to join the ticket as my lieutenant governor, as my running mate. Um, It was something that we had contemplated in the past, um, but the timing just appeared right based on seeing a shift um, in this campaign, but also seeing a, a bit of a shift in the environment. After Nathan joined the ticket, I thought, I, I think we we very clearly can um, differentiate ourselves from my our opponents. And it just, it seemed like the right time to do it. So if, if it were me, the idea of spending $3 million would make give me a little heartburn, I guess. Um, uh, how is it, uh, was that a difficult de- decision to kind of put your own personal money on the line like that? Of course, I'm an accountant. So yeah, you would expect it to to be for all kinds of reasons. It's a lot of money. I'm not gonna, it's a lot of money, you know, growing up in a working class family that we didn't have extra money to, 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 to do these kinds of things. Um, It's a lot of money. It's a very serious, uh, it was a very serious decision to make. Um, But we are committed to what I'm doing and we're committed to making sure that we have a good conservative elected to serve as governor um, starting in 2019. So did you still have $3 million lying around or how do you scrape that together? Well, I'm not going to talk about all my personal finances. I guess they're out there with regard to my financial disclosure. Um, 
no, we don't just have $3 million. I don't know if we're going to get into a conversation about are you wealthy or not. Um, but it was a pretty serious decision. And it was, it's, it's, it was a big decision for us. And I think it speaks to how important this investment is to, to me and to my family that we're willing, willing and we are able to do this. Uh, how has the reception been since you made that decision and since that, that news got out there? Um, you know, I, it's one of those things. I'm not sure people pay attention to all of these details like we do. And so it's not, it's not like it's at the top. It's not like the forefront of everybody's mind when they're talking about it. I mean, my parents read my stories. So, you know, that's, that's two people, I guess. Yes. But. Well, I mean, people read our stories, but they're not insiders. You know, again, you're, I think you're like an insider politics, right? And, and people who are reading your story are the people who are paying way closer attention to politics, I think, than, than the average person is. I, I, I would be very curious to know if we, we polled 100 people, how many would know that there's even a primary in the governor's race? Yeah, it's, I know uh, uh, I get my teeth cleaned. I go to the dentist. I'm like, oh, what do you do? <laughs> do you, Andrew? Uh, yeah, right. Yes. And, uh, every every. Yeah, so twice months. a year, every six months, semi-regularly, <laughs> right? And so, oh, you cover politics. That's great. Like, I'm like, so what's going on? And I'm like, uh, I'm covering the governor's race. Oh, I didn't know there was a governor's race. That's great. So, yeah, I guess maybe not in the, the forefront of everyone's mind. It's not. I'm sorry. It's, it's which makes your job hard, but also makes my job hard too, right? It's like we got to campaign and get our message out there, and that's what we're doing. A couple more insider politics questions, if you will give it to us. I'm, I'm curious, you know, how would you describe your campaign style? And, you know, honestly, do you enjoy fundraising? So our campaign style, um, this is about, this is about, you know, Mary Taylor's tough and, and Mary Taylor's tough because of a lot of some of the things we talked about when growing up and we all are products of all of the things we've been through in our life and they make us who we are today. I'm, I'm tough and I'm willing to fight and I'm willing to stand up for people. And that's what our campaign is. I think that's, that is who we are. Um, we're probably a bit casual in that uh, we, we like to have fun. We're serious. Um, we're dedicated, but we also recognize that you need to have a little fun being that you can laugh once in a while when you're working on a very stressful campaign and um, have sympathy for each other when we're going through individual circumstances. Um, so I think that that probably describes who we are as a campaign and we're committed. We're committed to we're committed to standing up for the hardworking Ohioan and making sure everybody plays by the rules because I've talked to a lot of people across the state of Ohio, these hardworking Ohioans that that believe the rules are different for them than they are for the establishment, the good old boy. They feel that way and we're committed to standing up for them. Do I mind? I don't mind fundraising. It's making a lot of phone calls, talking to a lot of people and the best part about it is you get to hear what people really think. And I, I think sometimes people end up in certain positions, and it doesn't even matter if it's government or politics. Um, it could happen in the private sector. If you're, if you're in an echo chamber and all you hear is what you're saying, then I think you're missing out on what's most important about what you're doing. So what do you hear as being what's on people's minds when you're out campaigning, you're talking to people? What what's what do you think is are the, some of the big things that are, are, are that, that face the state? So it's interesting. Um, if you if you if you, 
you believe the public polls, which I don't, by the way, um, but I know we have some of our own internal polls. Typically, when you ask somebody what do they most care about uh, in a poll, they'll tell you jobs in the economy. And I do think that that's really important because people want opportunities. Um, and of course, there are any number of other issues that come up, the addiction crisis, because it is on the minds of a lot of people. Um, it could be health care, it could be education. But I think when you're actually talking to people, they they're concerned about the game being stacked against them they're concerned about not everybody's playing by the same rules and they are sick and tired of these dc insiders or you know this and and i'll use the word but people use the swamp people use these words when you're out talking to people so it's it's not just what the president the words the president uses but people talk about this is what i hear from people and they they're tired of it. They're just as tired of it today as they were in, you know, as they were on election day 2016. So is it tough for you being the lieutenant governor, just uh, having that title? Or do you feel like it's hard to sell people on the idea that you're you're there to actually kind of change the established order and you're not part of it? So I, um, it's, it's certainly something that we have to work very hard at. Let me start there because I'm going to answer your question. Um, we, we do work very hard at that. But uh, my my experience has been both when I was in the private sector, you know, challenging my partners to give let me work a part time schedule, but also the time that I've been in public service. Um, my record reflects I challenged the status quo, and I voted against the tax increase, the regulatory reform I lead. Um, thousands of job killing regulations have been eliminated or changed because of our work at CSI, the Common Sense Initiative. You know, we are about doing things a d- different, better way to give people more opportunities. And so my record does, it's pretty clear that I'm willing to challenge the status quo. So what I need to, what we what we do and what we're trying to do and I need to do is, there's this title called Lieutenant Governor, um, which means something, just the title itself. But but what is it I do? What is the, what, what's, what work have I done? Um, and what, what do I stand for that is different, not different, but beyond that title? It has to be interesting. You know, I've, I've heard you say a couple of times, like, who is Mary Taylor? You know, what do I stand for? You know, not that many people for their job have to think so deeply about who they are, what their brand is, what they want people to take away from you. It, it has to be interesting. It's not something that everyone has to do, you know, for their job every day. I mean, is that just politics or? So what I liken it to, um, a campaign is no different than a company, right? It's, it's, you either have a product that you're selling or you have a service that you're selling. And you have to go through if you own your company and you have to do all of the things you've just said to the branding and, you know, is your pro- what is your product? What is your service? What differentiates you from um, your opponents? And it's, so it's, this, it's exactly the same. The only difference is the, it's Mary Taylor. It's Mary Taylor Inc. as opposed to I'm selling Nike tenor shoes. That's an awful comparison because Mary Taylor Inc. is nothing like Nike tenor shoes. But, I mean, they do the same thing, right? They're just really, really good at it. And they have a really long established name and reputation um, that serves them very well today. But it's it's similar. It's very similar. Is it hard to kind of sell yourself almost like as a product or whatever, you know, Mary Taylor Inc. is involved with? I think at first it probably was because you have to... You have to, it can't be so personal. 
Um, and, and you have to get, you have to, you have to make sure that when you, when you're talking about Mary Taylor, it truly, who is Mary Taylor? And you have to identify your strengths and identify your weaknesses and just be honest about how you go forward. And we're, we're there, we're there on this campaign. We're where we need to be. And so kind of, what do you see as your path to victory? It's, um, uh, people like me like to call Mike DeWine, the Republican front runner, you know, but th- there's all of that stuff that's kind of stacked against you. But so h- how do you view the, the race as far as h- how you can be successful and, and accomplish what you want to accomplish? So our, our my path to victory is taking it, taking my message directly to the voter of the state of Ohio. And Mike DeWine is the front runner, as you would say, <laughs> um, because he has more money and he's been on the ballot in every decade for the last five and people recognize his name. Um, and his son was most recently on the ballot running for the Ohio Supreme Court. And, you know, that name is the same name. So De- DeWine, the last name. Um, I think that's why people perceive him to be the front runner. But at the end of the day, this is about winning the hearts and minds of people. And it's about going directly to the voter and talking about not only the challenges, but what, what are, what's the future? What does the future look like? And who's going to best lead us to that future? And it's not Mike DeWine. And so... I guess it's okay if you want to call him the front runner, but I, I think it's at the end of the day, it's the people who show up and vote both on both sides, the Republican primary and the Democrat primary, who are ultimately going to decide who goes into the November election. You recently uh, gave an interview in which you said that uh, at that time you weren't sure if you would support the DeWine Houston ticket in the event that they were to get the nomination. Do you, do you still feel that way? You know, of course, I'll, I'll vote for the Republican ticket. Uh, Mike DeWine, in this case, is, is less liberal than Dennis Kucinich. And as a Republican, that's important to me. So you would vote for them then if that's kind of the, the choice that you're presented with? I think the choice I'm going to be presented with is Mary Taylor over some Democrats. So I plan to win on May 8th and fully expect to be voting for myself. I want to ask you a little bit about some of uh, the major topics or issues in this race. Obviously, you've talked a lot about how you are different than your opponent. Um, And one of the ways you are, you know, obviously the opioid uh, epidemic is such a huge issue across Ohio and, you know, sort of as a result has become a huge issue in this gubernatorial race. You know, unlike many people um, in politics, you actually have a personal connection uh, to the opioid uh, epidemic. You've talked publicly about how your two sons have struggled um, in your own family. I'm just curious about how that personal experience with the opioid epidemic um, has affected the way you view policy towards uh, this problem. In a really big, important way, I believe that, um, again, all, all of your life's experiences form who you are in your opinions about things, but also um, what you think are solutions to those challenges. Um, I can tell you, having been through what I've been through personally, and I know many Ohio families have been through it or are still going through it, it's hell. And it's, I don't know how else to describe it, but it's a living hell every single day. Um, and I, you know, I feel for parents and families who are still going through that crisis today. I guess, let me say this, there's hope and help and healing. And um, I hope that um, individuals finding themselves in this situation can find the help that they need and the hope that they need so that they can live their God-given potential here in the state of Ohio. And that's important to me because Ohio is home and I want Ohio to be a great place and a safe place for every single Ohioan. 
Um, but it has helped inform what I believe are the solutions, which is why I've rolled out uh, a policy initiative with regard to this addiction crisis. Um, I've been through it personally. I've been through treatment that works and treatment that doesn't work. And, and today, you know, we're fortunate that both of my sons are in a good place, but we also recognize this is every single day. Um, addiction is a crisis and it's, it's a brain disease and you've got to go the full continuum and it's, it's a challenge you face every single day. And that's why I've proposed, um, I will support and fight for uh, a bond initiative that I'll put before the voters of the state of Ohio to help us fund and incentivize the private sector to build out the type of care, the continuum of care that we need to give these individuals the opportunity to, to achieve their you know, American dream right here. It starts with what people you know, know as the 30, 60, 90, well, you start with detox and then you go... You know, that's that period right after agreeing to go to treatment. You have to detox from what you're on. And then you've got uh, many programs, your 30, 60, 90-day um, intensive inpatient treatment. And then what comes after that? And what we, we really need um, to, to begin to have the conversation around what comes after that. And it's, it's sober living. It's um, giving individuals the opportunity to live in a safe environment while they, while they are putting or getting themselves back into their communities and starting to live their lives outside of this intensive treatment. And we already know, based on a report the Ohio State University put out, it's been several months ago now, but um, this, the economic impact of this crisis on Ohio is about $8 billion a year. We're already spending money, and what we need to be focused on is giving these people the chance to to heal their lives and and be productive citizens once again. And we can get there, but it's it's you know we've got a long way to go. And this issue, of course, personally passionate about, um, but I also believe it's my solution that's going to provide the opportunity to people who are living in addiction today. Many people who are suffering from opioid addiction in Ohio have say they benefited from uh, Medicaid expansion, which you oppose. I'm just curious, you know, if you become governor, um, what do you say to those people who are, you know, currently on Medicaid expansion, getting the help that they need for their opioid addiction? Um, are they still going to get the help that they need? What What's the Mary Taylor plan? So um, I would say, first of all, I even in this case, as I said before, Medicaid expansion is not the best we can do. And I, Medicaid is not the best we can hope for. Um, if you're an individual suffering or struggling, um, or if you're part of the working poor, we need better alternatives to provide the health care, and in this case, addiction treatment, um, that you ultimately need. I've rolled out on the on the health care side, um, instead of, you know, again, bringing back the uh, consumer-driven market-based approach, and I talked about the direct care or direct primary care model, and allowing individuals to go directly to their doctor outside of insurance um, to get their health care. I think it works very well with regard to addiction treatment, especially when you think about uh, the healing the brain piece of it, um, needing to have regular appointments um, with therapists who can help you start to heal your brain after you have been sober long enough to start working on that part of, um, of your recovery or that part of your care. I think that the direct primary care or direct care model works very well there. Also with regard to medication assisted treatment, um, it's being used and in various ways across the state of Ohio and giving the individuals in addiction the opportunity to go directly to their doctor for that medication and the assistance they need from that physician without dealing with a Medicaid system that's broken or without dealing with um, Obamacare that's that's failed. Um, and the other, I guess the last thing I'll say, 
this is the most important crisis, social crisis we face in the state of Ohio. Um, I do not believe, nor will I build a solution on an unsustainable financial model of the Medicaid expansion. So you're a, you're an accountant, you're a CPA. Uh, have you had a chance to look at uh, your taxes this year? I have not. So we were curious what your thoughts were if you've had an opportunity to digest the uh, President Trump and the uh, Republican Congress, the tax plan that they passed. So um, I'm for tax reform, uh, and I'm for many provisions in, in the, the tax plan that was passed in Washington, uh, lowering the corporate tax rates, allowing uh, these corporations to bring jobs back to our country, and uh, ideally, and hopefully I want to be a governor that will bring many of those jobs to here to the state of Ohio, uh, cutting individual taxes and tax rates so that individuals have more money in their pocket. Um, I was at the event, you, I think you know that, that the president was at in Cincinnati, um, at Sheffer Corporation, a company, small business, um, privately owned, um, a company that gave all of their employees $1,000 bonuses in December because of the tax cuts, the Trump tax cuts, as they refer to them. But in addition to that, um, during that, I don't, were you there? I don't. I was you, not there, okay. no. I, they, had the, they had the press on some high-rise in the back of the room, so I couldn't really see who, the, who from the press was there. But anyway, um, there were several individuals from the company. The president called up to the stage and asked them to talk about the, what the tax cuts mean to them. And one individual lady said she's going to have $1,500 more in her pocket because of the tax cuts. And she has two kids in college, and so she was going to use that money to help pay college tuition. We're talking about real people and understanding what the impact is of how having more money in their pockets. And it's it's not the crumbs that Nancy Pelosi talked about, but, you know, real money to real people. And now they get to make those decisions. And there, I'll tell you the other piece, because I am a geeky accountant, um, it's called depreciation expense, or the president referred to it as the ability to expense, uh, expense 100% of any capital investment that you make in your company, whether it's new machinery and equipment because you're a manufacturer, to be able to deduct 100% of that in the first year, which is way different than amortizing it over a course of years. That's going to, I mean, that's a lot of money. First, it's going to, to spur, spur investment in um, fixed assets, spur, spur investment in you know companies going out and buying things that will help them produce more or manufacture more and um, make more products and sell more products. More people will be employed. Um, but then on top of that, they're going to have extra money. Uh, to, to again reinvest in their business or continue you know growing their business and hiring more people that's my geeky accountant yeah I don't I don't depreciation think expense yeah it's, I've never seen somebody get so excited to talk about depreciation I guess so sorry <laughs> um so, well we want to ask you uh, a few a uh, couple fun questions um to sort of wrap things up um we understand you have three dogs. Could you tell us a little bit about your dogs? I have three dogs. Um, my oldest dog is Maya, and she is a German Shepherd, and she is the boss of the family. Um, my second dog is Cooper. He's a boxer, and uh, Maya um, rules him pretty good. And then our third dog is my youngest son's dog. Um, she is a German Shepherd Husky, and her name's Akita. And uh, she's the youngest, so she just turned a year. So we have three big dogs. I have lots of mud in my house. Uh, I have two dogs that shed a lot, and there's often a lot of dark dog hair in my house. We also understand you're a big Cleveland sports uh, team fan. Uh, 
we're, we're curious. Uh, do you want to rank your favorite Cleveland sports teams? Do you like the Indians the best? Yeah, the Browns? Why too. Uh, yeah I bet it's the Browns, right? <laughs> it's the Browns. Football is my favorite sport, and I am a lifelong Cleveland Browns fan. My dad, always, we watched Cleveland Browns football every Sunday um, in our family room together, and so I really grew up um with the Browns, but also the Indians. So it's Browns, Indians, Cavs. And I, that probably has more to do with the, I don't know, order of, I don't know why that is. We were just football fans, I guess. So I would say Browns, Indians, Cavs, but not to discount how important it is to have the Cavs in Cleveland and of course the national championship. So we're about to get the hook. So, but we really appreciate you coming and uh, thanks for, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks.